0: Hello. This is Queer Out Here, an audio zine that explores the outdoors from queer perspectives. I'm Jonathan.
1: And I'm Alice. Welcome to Issue 7. This time, coming to your ears was a different kind of issue. Instead of opening for submissions, we track down pieces from other podcasts, radio shows, channels and albums to highlight some of the other great LGBTQAI outdoors content out there. The pieces range from agriculture to climate change, from a hike in Australia to literary discussions, and more. It was exciting to listen to pieces that address topics that had not often been covered in previous issues of Queer Out Here.
0: So, this issue is kind of a mixtape from us to you. We've only included extracts from these other shows, and although we'll try to give you a bit of context for each one, it's important to emphasise that these are small parts drawn from larger conversations. We really encourage you to check out the full episodes, which we've linked in our show notes. We're extremely grateful to all the people who have agreed to be part of this issue. Podcasters, music makers, YouTubers, filmmakers, farmers. Thank you.
1: Of course, we couldn't include everything we'd love you to hear. We listen to a lot more than we are featuring while preparing for this issue. We strongly encourage you to check out the inspiration page over at our website, at queerathere.com inspiration. We've added a lot of content in both audio and video format. We've even broken it down per time, so you can choose what to browse depending on how much time you have. Or you can be like us and gorge on all the lovely outdoorsy queer content we've gathered.
0: You'll notice through this episode that Alice and I have recorded our links in different places. Since the last issue, I've moved back to Australia, and I've been working on this issue on Gunai Kurnai Country. Occasionally, our meetings have been interrupted by raucous cockies outside the window, and we thought that recording our links outside might be a fun way to inject some more nature sounds into what might otherwise be a pretty talk-heavy issue. Let us know how you like the different format.
1: As always, there's a bit of housekeeping to do. The pieces in Queer Art here talk about many things relating to being queer and the outdoors. The issue contains mention of racism, homophobia, transphobia and violent threats, discussion of livestock farming, including killing and butchering animals, and mention of maggots in live sheep. Bodily fluid, references to the climate crisis and despair. If you have any specific concerns or triggers, we have a full searchable transcript linked in the show notes, or you can ask a trusted friend to listen and give you feedback before you dive in. And as usual, we also have loads more information about our contributors and their wonderful work on our website at queerouthere.com.
0: And now, on with the show.
1: Let's Let's get queer queer out out here. here. Hello, this is Alice, recording from my local park. There are children playing, being remarkably quiet. I was hoping for rockers, but hey, I'm going to record what I've got. There's a road in the distance that's always busy. And behind me, in a little copse of trees, birds are singing. And I'm here to record the first link for issue seven. We kick off this issue with an interview with Dallas Robinson for the programme Queer the Table, produced by Heritage Radio Network, a show about the joyful, messy, radical magic that happens in spaces where queerness and food intersect. Dallas is a black lesbian land steward who started the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm. In the expert we have chosen to share here, ego over why he chose this name for the farm, we have long wanted to include stories about agriculture and working with the land we're at here. It is an integral part of the outdoors, but not one we've had the chance to feature very much. Farming has been an integral part of my childhood. Whilst I was not actively involved with farming the land, I spent most weekends at my grandparents' farm. So, when I think of farming, those memories are what come to the fore a traditional farm passed on from father to son, gradually modernized and scaled up to meet the demand of globalization. This, however, is not Dallas's experience. Farming, for him, is a conscious choice, a political act aim came to in response to globalization and social justice. Dallas approaches the act of growing food as a form of healing for both the land and people. It is not simply a way to create cheap sustenance for the masses, but instead a way to connect to an overlooked history of black farmers and to heal our relationship to an abused land. Those principles run through the very root of the farm, including the choice of name. So much
2: of the way that you talk about your farm, it's deeply rooted in ancestral knowledge, this radical farming history. Um, Your farm's namesakes are Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer. And I wonder, like... That sounds like you came up with that way back at Soulfire, but do you want to talk about giving the farm that name and how that shows up day to day now that it's it's real?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I the first thing about it is I love that people have to say Harriet Tubman's name so much when they're talking about the farm. I'm just like, "Gotcha." <laughs> Which it shouldn't be pulling teeth to say her name. She was amazing. Um yeah, Soulfire, like I said, int- we did this whole timeline thing, and um, Fannie Lou Hamer came up a lot. And I think I was actually introduced to Fannie Lou Hamer at Soulfire. I don't think I knew about her beforehand. And what an amazing human being! Like, I was really blown away. Harriet Tubman is someone I was much more familiar with, but it started to occur to me like, Harriet Tubman had to know land like nobody else. And Harriet Tubman was an astrologer and Harriet Tubman was an herbalist. She also baked great pies, apparently. <laughs> um mm-hmm. and what what a beautiful thing to think about this black woman in a time that wasn't considered a full human being was just like, I believe so much in my skill set and my liberation that I refuse to abide by these laws like i'm gonna go be a fugitive y'all will just have to figure that out that's the that's the level of abolition liberation i want to operate at all times especially with my own self-talk like it's so enormous and gigantic of a person to say nah and i'm coming back for my family and i'm gonna be one of the most successful um military commanders this country has ever seen like What what a history! Um, But I also want to push people to think about Harriet Tubman as a naturalist and an herbalist and uh, a cook, like someone who had food skills that kept people alive and healthy. Um, And then Fannie Lou Hamer, I'm really honored to exist in the South. Like it it doesn't really count, but like by proximity, I'm like yes, Southern women all day. Fanny Lou Hamer is just really, I, I think of her as this incredible, um, specifically Black Southern experience, especially of our elders. I had a babysitter named Rosa who I love dearly, and Rosa has passed on now, but she used to tell us when we were kids that she didn't finish school. She was sharecropping with her family. So I I was raised in part by a woman who was a child and worked in cotton fields most of her life and then worked in the cotton mill when she was older. And that to me is so it sends chills through my body to think about this history is not history to me. Like that's those were my formative years. Um so when I heard about Fannie Lou Hamer's story, I immediately thought of Rosa and I'm getting very emotional right now, but um just to think about being a 6-year-old black girl and asked to work and then that's the rest of your life um being being in cotton fields and so poor yet having this amazing skill to store food over winter and feed yourself through that is the type of endurance that i don't think we can afford as black people especially to keep being so removed from. So I'm trying to honor Fannie Lou Hamer's work and the work of all those agriculturalists and preservationists who fed people through very hard times and still are. And the Freedom Farm Cooperative, uh, my dream is to have the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm be a cooperative run farm in the future. I'd love it if it was very soon because doing this solo is rough, but the The Freedom Farm Cooperative that Fannie Lou Hamer founded prioritized poor people, and, and you had to be a poor member. It was mixed in terms of race. There were Black members and white members in that part of Sunflower County. And I think that her adamant emphasis on poor people building power by being able to feed themselves working land using a skill that had been used against them for centuries and centuries is just so gracious and, or or like graceful. And it's ingenious. She knew if you can feed yourself, no one can push you around. And that's the realest thing, we see it today. People keep talking about food deserts. I'm putting quotes around that. It's food apartheid. You are purposely living next to garbage and that's all you have to eat because someone knows that as long as your body is in a constant state of, you know, sickness and and disease and unwellness, you're controllable. But I I mean, her vision is so um, powerful and impactful and I really want to honor that. And Personally, as someone with class privilege in this part of the South, I think that it's so important for me to leverage and do the work I can to create anti-capitalistic, both conversations and work in my class level. Like, um, I've been doing that work so hard in my family with my own mother. It's just like, no, we can't afford to have these kinds of words and and ideas that are so anti poor people. It's not, that is white supremacy and not on my farm. So I'm excited to uplift and honor and um, keep being inspired by these, these women and the collective, Uh, liberation practice they they put forth into the world. Hi, I'm Esther.
0: I'm on Wurundjeri country, uh, not far from where Five Mile Creek meets the Moonee Ponds Creek. One of my favourite things around here is it's not far from the suburb and the river Maribyrnong, which uh, in Wurundjeri language means I can hear a ringtail possum, and we quite often see ringtail possums around here, and it's just lovely. We feel really privileged to live here. You're listening to Queer Out Here. and I'm walking in the shallows of what's now known as the Ovens River in the borders of Tonga Country, just outside Pawponka. Our next couple of pieces come from the excellent podcast Country Queers, hosted by Ray Garinger. In particular, we're featuring excerpts of a few interviews from their series called Ode to Sheep. And the sound of sheep is familiar to millions of people across the world. In my experience most UK country walks will take you past at least one field of sheep and here in so-called Australia huge flocks of merinos swarm over the paddocks. We had um, sheep on the small farm where I grew up including my sister and my uh, long-suffering favourite called Mottle who loved peanut butter sandwiches and tolerated my sister and I dressing her up in Hats and coats to pose for photos. I remember once when we were rounding up the sheep down on the river flats for shearing, I was running to get them into the yard and I fell into a wombat hole. I loved the smell of Dad's clothes when he'd come back from hand shearing, and how after playing with yeah, the sheep, how my, my hands would,
4: smell would smell of land land. after handling wool. I didn't love to spin and knit like my mom and sister. I found it boring but I loved spending time with the sheep. I love how they'll freeze mid-step when it starts to rain and stand motionless in the field waiting for the weather to pass. I remember summer nights that my sister and I would set up a tent in the yard and we'd try to imitate the voices of the sheep. Some of them have these deep, bass voices, and some have these really high-pitched voices. Sometimes they crack like they're going through puberty. Some of them sound like they've been smoking for 50 years. I haven't lived with sheep in like 20 years, but there's still almost nothing as calming to me as the sight of a grazing flock out the window and their soft voices coming across the pasture. The flip side is that every time I hear coyotes, I still sit bolt upright in bed and feel panicked about where the sheep are before remembering that I don't have any. So this December, in the midst of my annual seasonal depression, which was made more stark this year by the intensity of spending an entire winter holiday season alone in my dark little house in a dark little holler in eastern Kentucky, I came across a video on Twitter of a three- or four-year-old British kid showing a sheep. For those who aren't familiar with livestock life, there are shows for sheep, for pigs, for goats, for cows, etc., where both the animals and the humans are judged on various elements of their presentation, and the animals are judged on their physical build and characteristics and health. You see this a lot at, like, state fairs, county fairs, and such. But of course, like so many things, due to the COVID pandemic, most of these types of events had been canceled. And so this video was part of a virtual sheep show. The kid was adorable. The sheep stood taller than her. She walked it around on a short rope, told it to stand back. And when her mom asked her what kind it was, she said, white, and then corrected herself and said, Dorset, which is a breed of sheep that originated in Britain. I watched the video probably five times in a row because it was delightful and brought me great joy. And who the hell didn't need some joy in December of 2020? And I thought that despite being a lifelong radio listener, I can't remember any sheep stories that I've heard in audio form. Which is weird to me, because they have really incredible voices and sounds, and they're really cool animals. And so in the weirdness that is my life these days, I put a call out on Country Queer's social media to see if any queer trans shepherds wanted to talk to me on the phone about sheep and gender and stuff. I thought maybe a couple people would reply, I often don't think things are going to work with this project, and I'm surprised that they do. But instead, I heard back from over a dozen sheep lovers across the U.S. and Canada. And so over the past three months, I've recorded a handful of phone calls navigating bad internet or cell service on one or both ends with people in Colorado, in Iowa, in Washington State, and in Manitoba and Ontario, Canada.
0: I'm back in the Ovens River, a little further upstream, and since I recorded my last link yesterday I've learnt that this is also the traditional country of the Yatematang people. The first Country Queers excerpt we're going to hear is part of an interview with Wesley Godden who, alongside his partner, raises sheep on Fairside Farm in eastern Ontario in Canada. After Wes's introduction, we're going to cut towards the end of the conversation, where Wes discusses some of the issues he's grappled with in farming livestock, particularly for meat. I really appreciate how Wes points out the impossibility of purity when it comes to farming, to food, to life. Uh, Ethical food is an open-ended equation I'm often running in my head. What am I eating? What were the conditions of its production? How is it being transported to my plate? It's not just about eating or not eating, using or not using animal products, although as a vegetarian that is important to me. But it's also about how the land is treated in production, the people and animals and how they're involved in all the processes, how the environment is considered, and so on. We've had some really interesting discussions with Wes when emailing back and forth for this issue, and it's been great to talk with a farmer who's so thoughtful about the way he works with animals and with the land that Fairside Farm is on. And on that note, I just wanted to add that the farm is on the unceded unsurrendered territory of the Anishinabe algonquin Nation.
5: Hi, this is Wesley and uh Welcome to the sounds of my farm. Hi, girls. How's it going today? My name is Wesley Garden. Um, I live in, uh, in Ontario in the, um, in the highlands of the Ottawa Valley. We moved from Toronto to the Ottawa Valley to raise sheep and to actually be closer to nature. So in 2016, we bought a farm um, up here and uh, and and started a sheep farm. Uh, originally, I came from Singapore, and in uh, Singapore, such a developed country that um, you don't really have the space and the nature that you find up here in the north um after meeting my partner in uh, 2000 we have always loved camping and loved nature and so that's why
6: we moved up here
4: well i want to talk about sheep which is the original reason we were talking and now we're 45 minutes in and i haven't asked you about your sheep <laughs> this is always my problem i could talk i could ask people questions all day but um so you also raise a hair sheep right a hair breed
5: yeah um we chose hair sheep after the quite an extensive research because we wanted uh, to raise sheep for food consumption. And so being new to sheep and all, we didn't want to have the hassle of um, having to share them, having to find an additional space or an infrastructure set up to make sure that the wool is clean. But hair sheep, um, this breed, Katahdin sheep, is actually created in the USA from two different breeds of hair sheep. I think in the '50s, so it's still a relatively new breed of sheep. It's quite it's quite used in the U.S., but it's it's getting more recognized now, even in in Canada, because of how utilitarian uh, this breed is. Hair sheep in, in general has uh, is more parasite resistant than wool sheep, so that also caught my attention because we didn't want to have to. Well, we didn't know much about how to keep sheep, so we didn't want to have parasites and all that stuff. In the winter right now, they live in a hoop barn, and uh, they're exposed to all, all the elements. They can come in and out as they please, but they always choose to stay in the barn. But they develop uh, an undercoat that's really thick, and they molt, molt it all off in the, in the spring. Mm. I've trained the sheep so that they come... With the call of my whistle
6: Ooh. or
5: my yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I'll I'll whistle. I'll I'll hit the grain bucket, and you'll see them just charging at you.
4: Yeah, for that grain. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: That's why we don't have any um we don't have any herding dogs because of how we train them.
6: Mm.
4: Will they and, come um, when you whistle, even if you don't have grain? that's incredible
5: <laughs> yeah because we, we have we have a few leaders in the in the pack in the flock yeah and it's those leaders that we train so once those leaders actually start making their way everyone else will start making their way towards mm. us too mm-hmm. they are very accepting of us going handling their lambs mm. some of them will bring their lambs to us oh
4: that's to actually, so sweet. <laughs> yeah
5: to to introduce us to them yeah oh. um, <laughs> Uh, especially a few of my favorite ewes they will they will come with their lambs and we'll pet them and i'll pet the ewes and um it's it's quite it's quite interesting we build a kind of a friendship you know um between between species
4: Mm. are you Uh, sad then because it sounds like you know i you know i think sheep farmers have such different styles and often sheep are less you know they can be much more shy than goats especially if you have a large herd but it sounds like you all have like pretty um you interact with them a lot and so did it take you a while to sort of get used to taking the lambs to market knowing that they'll be for meat or is that like a sad process for you
5: i i I, before we before we bought the farm this was our main uh, i guess our our main um um hurdle that we had to cross mm. um, because we we had we had to really think hard do we actually want to to be producers producers of meat animals and do we have an issue with sending them off to slaughter for food? Um, it was a very hard decision for us to make because um, knowing how each animal has a personality, um, but in the end we we, we kind of got over that because we understood that um, producing food also helps society.
6: Mm.
5: And anything that we eat, anything that we do, um, there is a life taken for the food that we eat. Even if it's a vegetable, even if it's a, a plant, we have killed something to eat that food. or Someone has killed something for you to eat that food. It doesn't have to be an animal. For example, if you were, if, if you were to eat romaine lettuce, for example, and um, having to till the ground or having to kill some bugs just so that you get that, that romaine lettuce in, on your table. Someone has killed something so that you survive. And that's basically part and parcel of the whole circle of life deep.
4: I've never actually heard somebody say that, that like, even if you're a vegetarian, even if you're a vegan, there is a loss of life that's happening, right? Because plants are alive, because worms are alive, because insects are alive. That's interesting. (laughs)
1: Thanks, ways. It's early morning, and I'm standing by a small farm, somewhere in Gloucestershire, um, as I'm cycling about. You might hear there's a road in the distance, um, but mostly there are chickens, a couple of pigs, some goats, and uh, a horse too, and lots of birds. But anyway, time to carry on with the issue. We continue with another excerpt from Ode to Sheep. This time, listening to Elena, a born leader, reminiscent of her southern Pacific tribes, as she chats about her family and early experiences of sheep. Elena recounts how the land and the farm of her relatives brought connection to her in her youth. She found a sense of freedom in the landscape and lifestyle, but also learned about the reality of farming, from maggots to butchering an animal to eat. This is something that resonates with me, as it echoes many of my own childhood memories on my grandparents' farm. I too experienced the freedom to roam in between farm tasks, one experienced differently from the children of the village. Feeding the sheep was especially exciting. My cousins, brother and I all cared for the lambs, Bringing milk bottles for the one rejected by their mothers or whose mothers had died. But it was also always clear that those animals were not pets and would instead end up in our freezers and plates. Roasting a sheep was a time of celebration and togetherness. The entire extended family would gather and we would celebrate the age old tradition of harvest and food in our cupboards. <coughs>
7: So, kia ora tatou, ko alena tuku ingwa ko aotearoa aho. So, greetings to everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Elena Higgins. I come from the waters of Tiroa. I am of Ngāpui and Rere Ahua tribes on my father's side, who is Māori, uh, indigenous to the lands of New Zealand. And my mother is Samoan, uh, so I am half Māori and half Samoan. I was born and bred in New Zealand. I have three families, including my New Zealand Pākehā white family who I grew up with. So very strong in three cultures. It was important for my foster family. Who I'm just for this interview, and when I do talk about my families, I say this to help you kind of understand. But everyone is mum, dad, brother, sister. So I have 11 siblings. Um, I'm the oldest in my father's family and the oldest in that generation. I am the middle child in my uh, mother's family that's biological and in my my family family I call family I'm I'm the baby so when I was 26 I jumped on a boat of a friend who was the first mate of the ship a a cargo ship so jumped on that ship went to Australia so it took six days to get across the Tasman and lived in Australia for the next 10 years. I'm curious about sheep. Maybe your earliest memories of sheep? Yeah. So, you know, I'm one of those people that takes a long time to get things. So it wasn't until being here and my cousin, whom I see now is my sister. Like, we're sisters. but she's my cousin. And we grew up together so whenever I was with at my staying with my dad my cousin Gabby would be there and my dad has all boys five boys for a living and you know I had no relationship with my brothers and so there would be my cousin and we just did so much together and she came from a sheep farm (laughs) Her father was the sheep manager. And so one of the joys in staying with my father was Gabby would be there. And when I was 12, we would go to her place, which was out in King Country. And one of the joys I had, probably the greatest memories and joys, was always running around in the tractor, particularly in lambing season. And it was the first time being in urban concrete living going down to King Country, being in the wilderness, huge lands in the back of the tractor with these rolling hills, making sure during lambing season, the ewes and the lambs were okay. And that was my greatest memory. And also growing up in my preteen teen years, probably the place of connection was being out on the farm being with my cousins and their family my auntie and uncle and just this rural living you know out on the sheep farm and you know probably the least favorite thing was when it was docking season time and sharing the sheep like I wouldn't share the sheep Uh, There'd probably be no sheep left, but having to do all the sweeping and the sweeping was fine, but not when it was um, their bums, you know, or the sheep dags, because I always remember the maggots and I love watching my cousin because it was just, you know, it was city girl versus farm girl where it was just wasn't an issue where I was just totally grossed out like watching all the maggots crawl out of the bums and all the dags and things like that and trying to be cool doing what she was doing too but I was really grossed out but I look at that fondly because it was a sense of freedom being on the farm you know the green open spaces the rolling hills, the fresh air, and the freedom, the freedom of that. So that was my first farming experience. And also as I would go back, I remember watching a sheep butcher and totally mortified. I remember uh, when we went to sit down and eat that day, we ended up eating lamb. And I, it's like, is this? Where did this come from? And my auntie calmly said, and proudly, oh, from the sheep you butchered. And, you know, I became a vegetarian for six months after that. You know, my auntie was trying to say to me, but you go to the shop, you go and get it. But, you know, it was just that whole traumatic experience of seeing that. But I'm also grateful for all of that. And I'm also grateful of that experience for the farmers, our agricultural industry of, you know, back to the land of how hard it is working and being on the land. And I have a great respect for that today because of my experiences being on the land uh, when I was a teenager, when I'd be staying with my cousin.
3: This is Emily. This is Jenny, and you're listening to Queer Out here. Oh, I just want to finish.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Emily and Jenny. I'm now standing at one of my favourite spots in my neighbourhood. It's not much to speak of, it's a path between houses. But there's this massive bush all along the path, and this particular spot is always full of birds. You can rarely see them, but they always think they heart out, and I love it. Anyway, on with the issue. The next excerpt is an interview with Frit Tam from the podcast Chatting to a Friend hosted by Katie Friend. Frit Tam is an award-winning outdoors and adventure filmmaker and photographer specializing in adding colour and diversity to the outdoors through adventure films and outdoors photography. In the section you're about to hear, they discuss the lack of diversity in the representation of the outdoors through a short film Frit film called The Wonderless Woman. Showcasing Amira Patel and her mother Aisha Ilmaz. Their chat resonated with us that we are out here. After all, we started the south using because we could not find any audiovisual channels where we could hear about LGBTQAI plus people's experiences of the outdoors in one place. We also failed at representing diversity in our early issues, too focused on white people's experiences of the outdoors. The work Fruit is doing is needed. Adventure in the outdoors is too often about a white, usually man-conquering nature, when in practice there are far more people enjoying nature in far more varied ways, all of which are deserving of notice.
8: I'm going to talk to you about your filmmaking first, if I may. Of course. I watched your sort of seven minute film, The Wanderlust Women. Yes. Because, I, and it's actually, I, I want to come onto that one first because I do want to talk to you about Joel Mosley and the Stand Up paddleboard, <laughs> But I want to talk about this one first because it kind of links into what you were just saying about people being educated or not wanting to be educated or people spending energy trying to educate people who don't want to. Um, Because I found it absolutely fascinating and it's not something I'd ever seen or thought about before. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about it and how you got in touch with Amira and her mum and just how it came about and, and what is the purpose behind Passion Fruit Pictures and bringing different views and different people and different areas of life into adventure
2: films. So, I'll start with Amira's film because that's the first thing you asked me about. So, The Wonderlust Women is a seven minute short film, as you just said, about two women called Amira Patel and Aisha Yilmaz. Um, Aisha is Amira's mother. So, essentially, I first came across them because Amira was starting to build up quite um, a, a big prominence on social media as a Muslim hiker who hikes whilst wearing the veil. And I just loved her positivity. I loved that she was going out into these big, expansive places and she flies a drone. So she would get her drone out and um, post these really beautiful reels on Instagram of the locations that she was hiking in. And then she essentially, long story short, set up a hiking group because she is Muslim herself. And a lot of the women who come on her hikes, I think really look up to her. So Mm. You know the 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 Wonderlust Women is the name of the film, but also the name of Amira's um, hiking group. So I found out about Amira, had followed her for a while, and whilst I was setting up Passion Fruit Pictures, so I'll come onto that for a minute, which is that mm. um, Passion Fruit Pictures is my film studio um, that that makes adventure films with a sole mission of adding color and diversity to adventure Mm. filmmaking. And the purpose behind it is because, uh, as many of your listeners will probably know, we only really see a tiny slither of the population being represented Mm. in adventure films. There is a classic trope of one particular individual who will be a sponsored athlete, who will then get sponsored to go on this big adventure. And it will be the sort of big, epic, I must conquer kind of narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and the more that I was feeling disconnected from that myself as being someone who does not embody any of that classic trope, Mm. I also began to wonder about other people and very quickly found that there were plenty of other adventurers and outdoors people who did not fit that mold, who I felt that their stories were just being completely ignored So they were Mm. out there, some of them were out there doing incredible things, traveling all over the world and fulfilling that kind of, you know, I must conquer kind of narrative. Mm. But again, I never heard about them. So a really good example of that um, is a Japanese mountaineer called Yunko Tobai, who is the Mm -hmm. first woman to have summited Everest. She's Japanese. And I didn't hear about her until a couple of years ago when I was Googling Mm -hmm. to try and find who the first woman was who summited Everest. You know, we all hear about Edmund Hillary, who was the first man who summited Everest. And his story is covered in films and in books and in TV shows. But where's Junko Tobias' story? Um, Mm. And that really irked me. So I thought, um, I'm a filmmaker. I want to make films about um, the adventure space and about the outdoors. So I want to make films that resonate with me and that um, have the narratives and and the protagonists that, that I've been searching for. Mm-hmm. So I also decided that as much as I want to make big adventure films that have these sort of big epic um, challenges and adventures, I also wanted to promote and share the stories of people who maybe working in a more localized area, but their impact is still just as strong, if not potentially bigger. And that's sort of where Amira came in, where I mm-hmm. saw that she had essentially a following of more than a thousand Muslim women who she was taking out on hikes. Mm. And I just thought, this is incredible. Where's her story? She is. She has sort of, um, She's she's been featured in quite a number of things now, but um,
8: mm-hmm.
2: when I was filming with her, um, it still felt like quite a, a, a small thing. Um, and I was just really lucky, I suppose, that mm. I managed to get in touch with her, that she replied. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had a few. That was a challenge I find. Yes. And <laughs> also, you know, at the same time, I'm like, I get it. You're busy. You don't need to reply. And, you know, this is a big time mm. commitment and it's a bit sort of out of the blue to be asked to have a film made about you, um, mm. I think can really sort of, um, it can it can it can make people feel nervous um, and not wholly comfortable with the idea. Amira yeah. embraced it though; she was like, "Yeah, that'd be great. I'd
8: love to." And then I found out about especially if you might you might wonder what is the motivation, especially you know, as she's representing a very different, as you say, a very different slice of the outdoor space. Definitely, I think it it potentially might help
2: um, with some um, protagonists of, of films that I want to make that. Mm. I am not the classic trope of yes. um, the elite adventurer or even just um the um the main individuals who who receive funding for adventure films. Um yeah. I don't know why I'm I'm being so sort of cautious about They're grizzly bearded white men. Let's just say it because they are. I don't know why I was being (laughs) so cautious then. I just, sometimes I find it's just, it's more concise because you you have to list so many things. Like, so, you know, young, white, able-bodied, most likely middle-class or
8: higher class, Uh, privileged educated cisgendered heterosexual men. Um, I was listening to Emily Chappell being interviewed by Matt Pycroft. Have you heard that? No I haven't that's on my list. Oh it's so good it's so good it's very powerful and there's a lot to unpack in there as as the expression goes but she was saying that actually she sort of kind of captured how I feel about it is that I really like those I really like those films like you know and the books that go with them we all love them you know there's nothing wrong with saying you love watching the grizzly you know bearded white man doing his thing but it's just not representative of everything that's happening
2: completely and I've been known to say in the past that it's not that I want to eradicate or overlook their achievements but mm. I still think that that what they've done is really impressive mm. and, and really inspirational but I'm fed up and bored of only seeing the same narratives and the same characters. Um, And so until we reach a point where there is no issue with funding, where there is no issue with the diversity of narratives and faces and abilities and ages that we see, Mm. um, then my focus for passion fruit pictures has to be to try and, increase the diversity that we see in adventure films and it it does, it. Yeah. it does sort of annoy me that I have to to some degree be exclusive um you know mm-hmm. because I, I feel that there is a gap that needs to be bridged um I'd love to live in a world where I don't have to do that
0: I'm recording on Braakalang, Kanai country in Gippsland, Victoria, and the sun's just rising and sending these brilliant bands of orange and pink along the bottom of all the clouds, and the birds are just waking up, as you can hear. Continuing on the general theme of queerness in cultural media, next up is an excerpt from the podcast Queers at the End of the World, hosted by Nina McQuown and Matt Messnard. This is a great queer podcast. It's not always about outdoors things, but it has really interesting analysis of all kinds of apocalyptic, dystopic, survivalist-related media, from books and films to video games and RPGs. I always come out of listening to it feeling intellectually nourished. In this particular episode, Boys in the Woods, part two, Nat and Nino are discussing three survivalist narratives, Chris McCandless in John Krakauer's Into the Wild, Brian Robeson in Gary Paulson's Hatchet, and Sam Gribbley in Jean Craighead George's My Side of the Mountain. The conversation shows how queerness, through its presence or absence, can be read into texts, and how a queer approach can encourage new interpretations. We're going to drop you straight into the middle of the conversation with Nino and Nat talking about how cultural and authorial preoccupations with certain archetypes of masculinity and ideas about sexuality shape how these books present nature or quote-unquote the wilderness and people's engagement with it.
9: Yeah, just that it's really, I think it's really threatening to him for McCandless to be celibate and so he has to like bring he has to like bring it back into a different archetype of masculinity, which is this one where it's like, well, I don't have sex you know, because because like women are dangerous to my masculine energy or something like that, you know, like as opposed to like ever considering that that he might be ace, <laughs>
10: you know, for example. Exactly. Yep. And I mean, to me, it reads as something that Krakower has been agonizing about for years of his own life. Mm. And yep. He's interpreting the behavior of this person that he's never met through a lens of, you know, immense, like maybe over over overanalyzing of the role sex plays in people's lives, the role sex or celibacy plays in his own life. And what that means about this particular, you know, kid that he's turned into a cipher for, you know, men everywhere who want to have experiences in the wild.
9: Yeah. And I would say also that that's a pretty consistent thing throughout, you know, books like this, including, of course, My Side of the Mountain and Hatchet. Like, there's no sex in the woods. There's, like, Mommy Falcons and <laughs> and, and Freudian Hatchet, but, like, there's no, you know, I, I mean, there are kids' books which tend not to talk directly about sex, but there's, like, no, they're total innocence as far as sex is concerned. They are thinking about it at all.
10: I mean, I think that may be a product to a little bit of when they were written. I mean, I know we see a lot more YA literature now that does address those topics more directly. But, I mean, these are teenagers. And I'm curious if there's wilderness stories about teenagers that do talk about sex. Because it seems to me like there's a fear of associating sex with time in the woods. and it feels a little homophobic to me. Like, it's like, the, it, it, it's like men are in the woods. The woods experiences, um, how did Krakauer say it? You know, the, the wilderness is hot and stark and rough. And there, <laughs> yeah. there seems to be this paranoid fear that if the relationship is sexualized, then the male author writing about the boy in the woods might be suspected to be gay.
9: Right. If the woods represents masculinity and the sort of wilderness adventure story is in a lot of ways like a a sensual sort of body centered story, then there's this sort of worry that the association of these feelings with this place um, or with this idea of wildness is also sort of kind of (laughs) gay.
10: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, there's this platonic sense of the way people enter into the woods, I think um, in some of these books that, that speaks to that for me. Um, mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah. Like me in the woods, like we're best friends. Like there's nothing going on between us. We swear, like we just hang out, you know, we do bro night. <laughs> like we play video <laughs> games together, but that's it. <laughs> like, there's no secret love that we feel. <laughs> like, and you're like, okay, <laughs> got it. Right.
9: i just trying some rough Congress with nature, but no homo.
10: Yeah, rough, rough <laughs> Congress could mean whatever, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it could just mean like, like tussling, you know, tussling a little bit. Just a little, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just roughing it up. Um. I it this is this is totally making me think of how much nature is sexualized in some explicitly openly gay literature and media and I'm totally thinking of call me by your name right now. It's just like nature is gay in that movie. And it's much more of a pastoral nature. It's like ponds and farm country and, you know, there's like people entering the water and there's a scene that involves fruit sex and it's just very like an example of that the idea of nature feeling totally sensual and lustful and sexual just to be in and it's it's really gorgeous like it's obviously a great example of like how arbitrary it is that nature is like denuded of that aspect in the stuff that we're talking about for this.
9: Well, I think it's particularly, I think it's particularly related to the kind of like to the survival narratives that we're talking about, and the idea of the wild, like as opposed to, I mean, I mean, there, there's such a long tradition of like shepherd stories being like very queer, you know, all the way, all the way back through the centuries, like you know, shepherds singing love songs to each other and pastoral poetry as this vehicle for like male friendship in scare quotes, and I think that association like there's there's something in there with like domesticity and um, that actually I find is one of the things about my side of the mountain that makes it really different for me from the other narratives is like, you know, we talked about like the the recipes that Sam um, that Sam comes up with and talks about in that book. But there's also like one of the things that has stuck with me my whole life. Uh, you know, even after I stopped reading it constantly and sleeping with it under my pillow. But that stuck with me from that book is the scene where Sam um it's like winter and he hasn't had anything green for a long time. He's just been like living on like the nuts he stored in his in his little treehouse. And he kills a rabbit that Frightful caught and um and he talks about like how good the liver looks <laughs> to him. He's just like knows he's like just he's just like directly wants to go for this liver so and then he eats it and and the kind of narrative voice is like i was drawn to the liver because i was vitamin c deficient right and that was that was in the liver and like that was kind of for me as a kid the first time i like had ever kind of heard that kind of listen to your body language and seen it illustrated and like the idea of of your body knowing what you need. And that was like so powerful for me and stuck with me my whole life as like a kind of example of what it could feel like to like listen to your body and know, which of course, you know, is definitely something that I think is hard for a lot of queer people, trans people, fat people, <laughs> like generally. Totally. You know?
10: I mean, that is really reminding me of when we were saying that... Um, in Hatchet, there were these things that Brian just knows. And in the context of Hatchet, we were a little dubious that he would just know things the way he does in that story. Um, But I think there's something there that is compelling in these narratives that has to do with nature being an opportunity to listen to your body because the body is such a dominant presence when you're in a survival situation. And it becomes this incredible um, site of inquiry and information. And, you know, regardless of whether or not, like, nature is being narrated in a, like, no homo kind of way, and I don't like that aspect of these stories, I love the idea of, you know, the concept of, being in the wild or an encounter with nature as being like an encounter with the body.
9: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. And I think, and I think that is one of the really compelling and powerful sort of sites where like I could see, yeah, I could see like queer wilderness education and queer wilderness practice being like really powerful in a queer context because it can be this like process of of bodily attention and like being in place in a more full presence mind body way <laughs> um but i think that that too is kind of particularly threatening to the sort of masculine archetype of of wilderness explorer because like i mean i think that's kind of what what the sex thing is about like if you're listening to your body in the wilderness then like You know your body could be saying some scary things to you like that it has desires and that it you know (laughs) and that it's not entirely under your control and that you're not just a free individual with you know with total control over everything around you
0: that whole episode is such a great conversation with me knowing that season two of queers at the end of the world started in march this year and I'm really enjoying it so far. We thought we'd drop their trailer in here as well to give you an idea of their themes for this season. Here we go.
11: Yes, think
12: It's dangerous to assume that whatever we're, we've been doing, we're going to keep doing that. You know, the future is more of the same, more only more advanced.
9: SpaceX was founded to develop the transportation systems to take people to other planets.
6: NASA calls it mission from planet Earth, planning today for such things as voyaging back to the moon, placing the first footprints on the distant planet Mars, and even looking beyond our solar system home to worlds circling faraway stars.
10: In the first year of the global pandemic, we started talking about queer visions of our culture's narratives of apocalypse, dystopia, and survival.
9: This season, we look at what
10: comes after collapse. Escape. So like, escape to Mars from apocalyptic Earth?
9: Yeah, and escape from the internet,
10: and maybe escape from our family dynamics. (laughs) Good luck with that. How about escape from your apartment into an hour of talking about genre fiction and geisha and apocalypses with us? Yes, definitely that. This is Queers at the End of the World, Season 2. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, starting early 2022.
0: rail trail in South Gippsland, Australia. Uh, I'm in a tunnel which is uh, going underneath a highway with lots of roadworks going on, which you can probably hear in the background. Uh, And you are listening to Queer Out Here.
1: Thanks, Dan. I'm not at the River Foon in Gloucestershire in England. I found a, a tiny, windy waterfall at the river. I'm just standing here listening. And I thought it'd be a, a great place to record the next link, which talks about water. After a lot of interviews and chats, we're now turning to music with Everbeach a piece from Helen's album Song of Time and Distance This song was inspired by an old demo tape from a visit to Bar Claudia Dergoes, a Neolithic burial chamber on the west coast of Inusmon, Anglesey Helen says she had good memories of the day which were brought back to mind after reading a tweet from the climate scientist Dr. Genevieve Gonter in response to the 2019 IPCC report pointing out that climate change will have such profound effect that by 2100, every beach you've ever walked on will be below the waves. I love the reasons of the waves in the track and how the music and words become increasingly disjointed, my anxiety rising as a song drowns every beach I have ever walked on.
0: I'm recording once again in my parents' backyard on gunai Kernai country in Gippsland. You can hear the birds in the background and the insects, maybe some traffic, and hopefully the chooks. It's hard sometimes to think of the state of the world and not sink into a depression. Helen's piece is one of climate despair, both a warning and an observation of fact. Thanks for your input. (laughs) The piece raises the question of what a person can do in the face of overwhelming issues like climate collapse, war and oppressive political power. And usually the answer is to be part of a collective movement to resist and advocate for change, to build networks of solidarity. And that looks different for different people. Our next piece is a final excerpt from the Country Queers podcast with Ray interviewing Penny, who is the founder of Tenacious Unicorn Ranch, a queer anarchist collective alpaca ranch in southern Colorado on Ute, Apache and Navajo land. Like Dallas at the start of this issue, Penny's foundation and approach to farming is a political active response to issues around her. And one thing we love about this interview is how much joy Penny has found in her ranch in her time with the alpaca.
6: I had to move out of my house because I was living in Commerce City in Denver and I was the the threat became routine. Um, and I just was kind of in fear of my life, like really. And so I moved back to Longmont, um, and, uh, and I I got a job at target. Like I, I kind of just wanted like to heal a little bit and have like no pressure, like being a broker is extreme amounts of pressure. And so I just kind of, uh, you know, was waiting to get surgeries and stuff. And, um, you know, just kind of, I, I was a line manager at Target and just kind of, you know, like experimenting with, you know, like really dating for the first time and all these things, mm. you know, like um, going through my second teenage years, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then Trump got elected. And that, um, I mean, I, having watched societies collapse firsthand, I saw all of the warning signs that was Trumpism, so I started gathering good people around me, and I started uh, the process of selling my house in Denver in order to make a haven, a-, a safe place for queer people. And so, like it was, it was kind of just like a reactionary. We've got to do something, mm-hmm. and then an opportunity to get a ranch in Livermore came up uh to rent a ranch in Livermore. Um and I'd I had wanted alpaca like for a minute, but never had like the like the ability to justify giving alpaca. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> um like, I couldn't really explore, you know like cross those teams. Um but then we got forty acres in Livermore, Colorado. Um and I had been talking at that point to a couple that was retiring And like their herd was becoming a little bit too much for them, but they wanted it to stay together. And so I inherited 72 alpaca from this couple. And then we launched from there. The Tenacious Unicorn Ranch was born in October of 2018. And and we've just been running forward ever since trying to make it work, you know?
11: Well, I guess I'm curious, you said kind of like you'd wanted to get alpacas for a while, but you didn't have a reason to really. And I wonder, like, where did that start? Did you meet an alpaca? Did you just read about them? Like, how did you get this idea that you wanted to raise alpacas?
6: So it's this weird thing, right? Like, so I had never been introduced to them, but there was at uh, my church when I was about seven or eight, there was a uh, a family that was doing missionary work. Um, in Peru. And they brought back photos of these fucking mythical creatures called alpaca. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I had never seen anything like that in my life. Like, my mom is Armenian. And so, like, camel, sure. I I understand a camel, but an alpaca... Mm. Is like an adorable camel, like everything you want a camel to be, like um, it's like furrier and shorter, and like shorter and not as threatening, and like um and adorable, like because in Peru, like during the festivals, they dress them up, and like yeah, no, it's just like everything you want a camel to be, um, and I, I mean, I had never met one. It, it was just fascinating to me. And so it was just kind of, kind of always in the back of my mind, like alpaca, you know, like that's if I could ever make that work, like. Right.
11: <laughs> and now you have you have almost a of, of them. Of them. Yeah, that's sure. incredible. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, I never got spit on by a llama as a kid. My mom <laughs> did once, which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. But um, so will you just talk about their spitting? Cause I feel like it's a thing that for people who might listen, who've never been around an alpaca or a llama or a camel, yeah. um, spitting is such a part of how they like communicate with each other. And it's so different than so many animals. I just yeah. wonder if there's stuff you yeah. can say about that.
6: <laughs> people get, uh, people get weird around like the animals spitting at them. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I've been, so you, you learn right away when you start with alpaca, that it's not like saliva that they're spitting at you it's actually regurgitation that they're spitting at you like it is uh, it, it is essentially bile that they're spitting at you <laughs> um, and it smells disgustingly i have been coated in it many times when you have as many as we do and you like go through shearing or feeding even like because it is a pecking order thing they use it to be like it, it's it's their way of and like fuck off, you know, like they just right. start spitting, um, and you know it's very—it's a clear message. <laughs> it's very clear um, communication. It's true. <laughs> yeah, like it is the most direct you can get, and yeah, it's gross, but also you know, like it's just part of who they are and and how they. You said it very well. It's how they communicate. It's a, a way for them to let you know that they're uncomfortable or scared with what you're doing or what's going on or what the situation is. Um, some of them like I have alpaca that have never spit at all like ever and then I have alpaca that it's like their go-to move it's how they say hi (laughs) when they're happy they spit when they're mad they spit like it is just their go-to move and that's you know like you love them all the same but yeah it's pretty vile like it's it it has a smell that doesn't ever truly wash out of your clothes (laughs) And just kind of deal with it, you know. Like, yeah, um, it's they, they will like an alpaca does not care. Like, they will spit directly in your face. But they will just look you in the eye and spit directly in your mouth. <laughs> they don't care. Uh, and it is uh, it, it is ten levels of gross, but um, it's just grass, you know. Like at the yeah. end of the day.
11: <laughs> um, it's like slightly so fermented or something grass,
6: right? <laughs> right? Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's well-fermented grass. Like, <laughs> you paid for it, you might as well enjoy it. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, I, I have many a green stained shirt and that mm-hmm. you know, it's just part of part of raising Alpaca. It, it is less benevolent than people, I think, fear. But, um, once you catch that first wad in your face, like, you realize, like, you just got to feel, like, this is going to happen, and it's gross, but you can get over it.
11: <laughs> do they, um, do they sort of, like, hum to each other? I remember the llamas would make this almost oh, like a humming eyes. noise to each other. Yeah.
6: Like, I... We, we call it, uh, we call it alpaca indecision, because they go...
11: Uh, uh,
6: uh. And yeah, like they only make that noise when they're nervous or when they're unsettled Um, and they use it as something of a communication. Like you'll hear a hum, like you'll hear wolves howl and then it'll go through a valley. It's the same with alpaca. They'll hum all the way through a herd. Um, And, it's you know, it's enchanting Uh, when your herd is settled that, you know, you're doing everything right. Like they're fed, they have enough water, they feel comfortable it's their silent and that's how mm. you know you know mm-hmm. um so when they're humming I, I tend to like perk up and make sure we know what's going on and then they also yip when they're in trouble and that'll pass through the herd too they go yip 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 yip, yip. Mm. and it's uh it's like their warning um noise and it's pretty that that one's pretty incredible too
11: Will you do the hum again? And I'm going to mute myself because I was laughing too much when you did it before. The (laughs) indecision. (laughs) so good. I'm going to mute myself. Thank you. (laughs)
1: I'm sitting in a cottage in the Lake District in England. I'm by the windowsill, listening and watching the rainfall. There's a few people out and about walking the dogs. But I'm probably not going to walk in the hills. They're covered in clouds, and my navigation skills are not that good. Instead, I'll probably explore a few museums, chill out. Enjoy your coffee somewhere, something like that. But for now, I'm recording this link for queer art here, so let's get back to it. And you'd be forgiven for thinking country queers is all about sheep and alpacas, because of the episode we've drawn on for this issue. But it's not. The podcast explores rural queer experiences across intersecting layers of identity, in the trailer for their second season, you can hear the range of conversation from identities, land, colonization, ancestral memory, race, class, belonging, and what the country even means. <laughs>
3: Something about just enjoying just the sound of rain, the smell of the rain, the distant trees, the color of fall in the country. As
2: I'm going down my path to like be colonized or learn more about my culture and language, that concept of something being both broad and specific, but also changeable and fluid. I started to realize that really my ability to understand my own Hawaiian culture had already been practiced in my own life by being
3: queer. Generationally, what has gone through my great-grandmother, through my mother, through every member of my family sits with me.
0: When you find a dangerous-looking acting, but intensely loving butch. It's kind of amazing. You know, it's like hold me down, honey, but not too hard.
6: <laughs> definitely, um, the the country lifestyle is very much part of my identity. I don't like know how to like phrase that. Like I don't feel like I identify as like a redneck, but it definitely has some redneck genetics in me.
11: <laughs> how do we not let that sort of internalized, yucky stuff, clutter, a sense of trust and knowing that like, there's something really joyful and beautiful about being queer, about being trans.
5: It's a
0: sentimental house to me because it's the house where my grandmother was born. And when I realized that I had a chance to save it, I literally just put everything I had into it. I grew up with my grandparents, so I feel like I know them Really well, but living in where they're from in their town is a whole nother level of understanding.
4: I, <laughs> I approached the person that I was gonna be singing with, and I said, "Do you think the, that that banjo strap is too gay?" And he said, "There's no such thing as too gay. It's like having too much money." And I just I was in stitches laughing, you know, doubled over. And uh, I thought, "There's I'm never taking this strap off here now." I haven't since. This is Country Queers. And for season two, we teamed up with our friends at Out in the Open and invited six rural and small town LGBTQ plus folks to join us in an experimental adventure in producing a collaborative season by us and for us. Episode One is headed your way on December fourteenth. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.
12: Hi, I'm Max and i'm currently in kensington gardens in london and you're listening to queer out here
1: Thanks, Mags. It wouldn't be a proper issue of queer out here without you. For this next link, I'm sitting by a field not very far from work, on one of the many routes I like to take on my lunch break. And I thought I'd take you with me following along in my footsteps. It felt fitting to introduce the next piece, our final one. We join Dr. Kate Guarroch as she records an outing near Canberra on New Country. Kate immerses a listener into nature around her, stopping to admire the flora and listen to the fauna. This piece is an audio edit of a video from Kate's YouTube channel, simply named Kate Guarroch. We highly recommend you check the original video for added visuals. We'll link it in the show notes. I love the weaving in and out of Kate's voice through this piece. I am transported to another place via the field recordings, a moment of pause in my usual, more urban environment. And Kate's voice adds to the picture, enriching my experience by explaining the sounds.
12: How are you? Today we are on beautiful Ngunnawal country on Mount Ainslie and we're going to go for a walk and a bit of an explore. It's spring so all the birds and uh, flowers are blooming and it's just such a beautiful time to be out and about in Canberra. And you might hear I've got my little buddy with me Lupo. <laughs> my little dog Lupo is coming with me today and he's pretty excited because he can smell some kangaroos. This is a shingleback lizard or a stumpy tail. And you can see his head looks very similar. Woo, (laughs) that's cool. His head looks very similar to his bum. So it's like a defense mechanism. Kookaburra will come down and go for the bum, not the head. Very cool. Hey buddy, I'll leave you alone. See ya. Check this out these leaves are quite different to the leaves of this eucalypt here see they're sort of round these skinny ones are actually mistletoe so this is a parasite on the tree and it's got this beautiful relationship with the bird it produces these berries these red berries that are really really sticky and the mistletoe bird loves them mistletoe bird eats all the berries and then when he goes to do a poo they're very very sticky so the bird's got to wipe its bottom on tree trunks (laughs) to get the poo out and that's how they get placed up there and that's how they tap into the tree come on what are you doing come on out now this is a cute little dam that's filled up in the bit of rain that we've had and there's a whole heap of frogs that I can hear calling here. And the coolest thing about frogs is that every species has a different call. And so just by sitting here quietly, I can work out what species there are. You hear that one like marbles? That's Crinia signifera, the common Eastern froglet. And in the background, I'm not sure if you can hear it, it's one of my favorite birds is the black cockatoo. I can hear them sort of up here. Hmm. There's another one I can hear that's going ba 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 and that's Limnodynastes tasmaniensis, or the uh, spotted marsh frog. Ba ba ba, that guy. And then you can also hear one that's like a creaking door, like wah,
1: wah. Yeah,
12: that's him, and that's uh, Crinia parasignifera like a creaky frog or something, I'll call him that. This is a beautiful leopard orchid and these are just magnificent and this time of year in spring just every week I come out and there's a different orchid flowering. So precious. So this little guy here is a kangaroo apple or bush tomato and so it's got these beautiful purple flowers on it and then it has this sort of a round fruit that looks like a tomato. When they're green they're actually poisonous so uh, yeah obviously not one to mess around with but it is a beautiful traditional food that we have here in Australia. This has to be one of my favorite plants at the moment it's austral indigo and you can see these beautiful purple pea flowers and the first nations people actually use it crush it up a bit and put it in the water body and it would um stun the fish or kill the fish and that all rise to the surface and so pretty amazing little um useful and beautiful plant I've actually planted some in my backyard because i just think it's so gorgeous Check out this beautiful hollow bearing tree behind me. Now these are so important in Australia, we have something like over 300 species are dependent on hollows for nesting that's like sugar gliders possums and many many native birds But in Australia, we don't have anything like woodpeckers that can create these hollows So it's all dependent on natural process of rotten decay and that can take years 50 100 150 200 years for some hollows to form that are big enough for some of our bigger animals like our powerful owls Which huge native owl species and um, you know, there's a lot of competition for these and things like like introduced honeybees can get in there and um, take over nests. I've even seen ones with uh, native parrots inside where the bees have taken over and killed the, killed the parrot and the, the eggs. And so these old trees like this, that have these hollows, are just so important for our wildlife. Oh, this way. Beautiful little yam daisy. Well, I've just popped onto a section of the Centenary Trail so Canberra has this big long walking track I think it's about 145 kilometres that goes pretty much from all the way in the north Canberra around to the south and back up to the north and it's just this beautiful trail that goes through all our nature reserves there's only one camping site on there but yeah I've been sort of section hiking over the last few years and it's just a really cool way to see different parts of Canberra that you know that I'd never normally get to. This is a native cherry so it looks quite different to many of our native plants and it almost looks like it doesn't belong. But there's this beautiful little fruit, you can see this fleshy part with a seed on the end and that's a native cherry. Now I don't think that's quite right. they turn quite red. I was also reading that the sap on this tree was used by the First Nations people to treat snake snakebite and that's just incredible. I'm almost back at the car. Thank you so much for watching. Huge shout out to my subscribers and my members. Thank you so much for your support. I hope you guys are doing well and happy hiking.
0: And that's a wrap for Queer Out Here issue 7. It's been a long time coming. We hope you've enjoyed hearing from so many brilliant queer voices and that you take the time to go and check out the full conversations, podcasts, channels and albums that we've featured here. All the links are in our show notes at queerouthere.com slash listen.
1: A big thank you to all the wonderful people who have accepted to have their work showcased in this issue of Queer Out Here. Dallas Robinson, as well as Nico Weisler and Dylan Hoer at Queer The Table on the Heritage Radio Network, Ray Garinger at Country Queers with Wesley Godden, Elena Higgins and Penelope Log. Katie at Chatting with a Friend and time. The folks over at Queer at the End of the World, Nino Macquan and Nat Mesnard. Helen for her music. And Dr. Ken Corraro for her hike in Australia. And of course, another huge thanks to our Sweeper contributors, Esther, Emily, Jenny, Dan and Mags who has been submitting audio since the very start of this audio scene.
0: If this issue has left you wanting more, you can find heaps of queer and or outdoorsy and or audio-centric content on the Inspiration page on our website, queerouthere.com. A few shows you might want to check out which aren't included in this issue are the Polyculture Podcast, Off Track, Transcripts, Shortcuts, Nocturne, Gender Reveal and Out There
1: we will be returning to our usual format for our next issue. So if you have an idea for an interview, trip report, piece of music, sound experiment, poem, essay, conversation or field recording you'd like to submit, why not start working on it now? We'll open for submissions later this year.
0: So all that remains now is to say thanks to you for downloading and listening to Queer Out here. If you have a moment, we'd love to know what you enjoyed about this episode over on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, you can also sign up for our very infrequent emails, the link's on our website. But mostly, we just like that you were listening and sharing the audio zine with other people. So keep it up. And now, from me, Jonathan.
1: And me, Alice. Goodbye. goodbye.